You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Alexandra Bracken on the show with me today. She has a phenomenal new book that's out today when we're recording this, and it's called Lore. And uh, what a what a fantastic book, uh, Alex. This is this has been so much fun to dig into and to see what you've done with some very um common stories to a lot of us and put some new twist and uh and and brought some excitement to that so welcome to the show thank you so much for having me and what a nice intro thank you uh alex we begin each show with the same question and that question is what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller i actually have i i wonder if this is the same for a lot of like authors, I have a very vivid memory of being in third grade. And I think I was reading a Roald Dahl book. But at the time, I just remember thinking, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. Like I just had this very somehow instinctive feeling that because I loved reading so much, I think I was like, this seems like such a fun job to be able to just tell stories. And as I, you know, as, as I've gotten older, I've always just been so inclined to storytelling and to reading and to talking to people about their stories. So it's been a real joy to be able to live that dream. I feel really honored and really blessed. You know, there that is a very similar story to a lot of people. Um, we've we've done more than a thousand shows and you know, the uh, that that's a common theme that comes up over and over again, the, you know, that a, a youngster sees books uh, and, and you know, she gets fascinated with stories. And this is just the only thing that makes sense. Of course, I'm going to do this, you know, one day. Yeah, uh, do you, I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> do, do you remember a time when you realized uh, and maybe it was the, the Roald Dahl book, um, but do you do you remember a time when you realized? that books didn't just show up out of the ether that, that, that people made these? Oh, that's a good question. I'm trying to think if I like have a distinct memory of kind of figuring out what an author was. I think I just sort of, you know, third grade was like a really big year for me for some reason. (laughs) Um, I think it was because my teacher also did like a storytelling unit where she would have us write these short stories and we would illustrate them and she would literally staple them together and they would be bound with like cardboard wrapped in contact paper. And I still have mine. Mine is a story about, I think the solar system. So I think I, I somehow through that came to understand that like stories don't just kind of appear on shelves. And as I've gotten older, I think one thing that I found really interesting was that there was still kind of a a mysterious aspect to publishing until I got to college when I started thinking more seriously about writing for publication. And thank God for the internet. I feel like with the internet, suddenly 
you could learn everything about publishing. You could learn how to write a query letter. You could learn who the agents were. And it wasn't like, I think, you know, even maybe like 15 years ago, well, not 15 years ago, maybe like 20 something years ago, you would still kind of go to the bookstore and buy like a book that listed all of these different agents and kind of talked more about the publishing market and all of that. So I think the internet really obviously changed the game in terms of like people suddenly understanding how publishing works. And it's, I mean, I'm sure you like, this must bug you too, whenever you watch a movie and or TV show, and it's like the character just, you know, prints off their manuscript, sends it off to New York. And then like two days later, they have a finished book. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. only it were that easy. Right. Yeah. yeah. The, and, and there's so many aspects to the business that just get glossed over or, um, because you know, for one, um, you know, that having a book that you finish the manuscript and then it's published shortly after is, uh, that's, it's comical. Um, because yeah. you know, it, it, it's a year long process, at least, uh, for most people, sometimes longer than that. And so much goes into it. Yeah. The, um, it's crazy crazy yeah oh you know this is so funny i like should i tell this story i'm sure it doesn't well i'm sure it's fine but so i worked in publishing after college i worked for my first year in publishing as an editorial assistant and then moved into marketing but before that i did something called the uh, columbia publishing course which is um, a couple weeks during the summer in New York city where you sort of get like a crash course in publishing and it really functions as like an expensive job fair really. Um, but one of the speakers in that program was Megan Tingley, who is the, um, publisher of Hachette children's books. And I remember her telling us that even Stephanie Meyer, the author of twilight basically was shocked that she actually had to edit the book. Cause she totally <laughs> came into publishing thinking that, the book was, you know, when she sent it in, it was good to go. And so I think, I think that is pretty much changed at this point. I think people get that there's a lot of editing involved and especially younger authors or, um, you know, like young aspiring authors, I should say, they have so much more contact with authors through social media that they have a really good sense of how the process works. You know, um, you have an interesting story from from what I've seen um, in in researching you. A, a lot of people get into publishing um, and and they they go to work in publishing with the hopes that one day they'll get their manuscript published. Um, that that's a it's a step uh, along the way for for a, a good many people. Um, I've talked to several authors who got their start by working in publishing and then kind of understanding the intricacies and you know, how the, the machine works and, you know, and where they could fit into that. Um, you have an interesting uh, history where you had a book published first, then went to work in publishing. Is that right? Yes. So let me tell you about my <laughs> crisis in college. So basically, <laughs> when I was um, a freshman in college, I decided that I wanted to participate in NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. If you guys, sure. I'm sure everybody's listening is familiar with this, but so that was like my first challenge to myself to write a wholly original novel that wasn't like fan fiction or wasn't just a couple short stories strung together. And so, um, I just fell in love with the process of novel writing and all throughout college, I was trying to 
write different stories and trying to seek publication. This was like not a particularly great idea because college is already, you know, busy and stressful enough in some ways. Um, and so I ended up getting an agent on my 21st birthday, which is the weirdest, I think most kismet part of the story. Um, and then I sold my first book when I was a senior in college. And so, um, after graduating though, I like, I had all along been thinking I would go to law school and then I kid you not in the middle of taking the LSAT, I sort of sat back and was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. Like, I don't want to go into debt, going to law school. I don't want to be um, negotiating with myself where, you know, I would be a lawyer for X amount of years and then try to be published. Or, you know, I, I think I just had parents who are very supportive, but also are from that generation who believe you kind of like make your money now, build your financial stability, and then you get to do what you love, like later in life or when you retire. And I think it's a very millennial thing to just be like, no, I'm going to try to do the thing I love, even if it doesn't quite work. And so thankfully, luckily, I sold a book while I was in college and I kind of proved to my parents that I could do this. But as many authors know, like you oftentimes cannot live off of a book advance. And that was the case here where it gave me some nice savings, but I was totally at a loss with what to do in terms of a day job. And for some reason, it had never occurred to me to work in publishing, even though I had done so much research into it, just seeking publication. So I went to the career center of my college and sat down with a counselor and she was like, well, why don't you just like try to work in publishing? And so that's sort of how I entered through the Columbia publishing course and then eventually got started in editorial um, in a major children's book publisher and then moved into marketing. So I would have a little bit more time to write at night, but it's true. There are, there are a lot of authors who also work in publishing or, you know, they leave publishing after they're able to sell a book and all of that. And I'm, I know I'm like, I'm such a chatterbox, but I'm like very grateful for that time I had in publishing because it is really giving me a lot of knowledge about how, you know, the industry works and how to really prioritize what matters when it comes to a book release. I guess that's, I think that's how I would put that. But yeah, I'm very grateful for my time in publishing. Absolutely. And, and while we're kind of jumping around, um, and this is not normally, um, uh, how we do it, but, um, you published a book, um, a Star Wars book, and then and looking looking into your background, you have a personal connection with Star Wars. Um, yeah. How did what what was it about your childhood um, that led you to Star Wars, and and how did it feel getting to to write and publish a book in that universe? Oh my gosh! Okay, so when my dad growing up, pretty much from the time I was in elementary school until he passed away in um, twenty twelve. My dad was a Star Wars collector, which meant I had like a really interesting childhood of going to like (laughs) antique, like antique shops and um, going to Star Wars conventions and just like bigger toy shows and all of that. It really like was kind of a wonderful childhood. And my dad like loved science fiction and loved fantasy. I always one of the reasons I think I became such a big reader is because he was always reading and I saw him reading all the time you know, when he was going to bed at night on the weekends, when we would go up North to a little cabin we had at the time, like 
I think he reread the Lord of the Rings every single summer. Like he was a diehard Lord of the Rings fan too. But, um, you know, so I, I knew Star Wars in and out and I'd really grown up reading Star Wars books. Like there was a time in my life where I just read Star Wars books exclusively, which was, you know, an interesting time, but, um, I never thought I would actually get to write a Star Wars book. And I published my original fiction through Disney's kind of original fiction imprint. And it just so happened that the author who was slated to write this retelling ended up having to like back out at very short notice. So my editor, like knowing how much I love Star Wars was like, do you think you would be able to very quickly write this book? And their aim with these retellings of the original trilogy was to kind of like experiment a little bit with format and introduce kids to the original trilogy who might've entered the Star Wars universe through like um, Star Wars Rebels or the Clone Wars, the animated series. And this was before, just before uh, The Force Awakens came out. So they like wanted kids to kind of have a refresher on who the original trilogy main characters were. Right. So it was such an honor. I feel like I wrote that book in a total fever dream. I got to use um, the like radio drama script. I got to pull a little bit from the Star Wars books that aren't really considered totally canon anymore. And yeah, it was a blast. I even got to visit the Lucasfilm office, but it was also, you know, like very bittersweet because I had lost my dad at that point and I hadn't even watched Star Wars since he had died because it was like, it was so painful. I associated it so closely with him. And I talk about it a little bit in the author's note too. And it's been really wonderful to connect to readers who have had a similar experience where a parent has like brought them into the Star Wars fandom and then they've lost their parent, but they still, you know, feel that connection with their loved one through Star Wars. Star Wars is, is really interesting to me in that um, it really can be considered um, a, a fantasy story or a fantasy series. Um, as much, uh, if not more, sometimes than than a science fiction series, and and I know that that science fiction and fantasy are very close cousins, and a lot a lot of times things will bleed over from one to the other, and I think Star Wars is a great example of that. Um, do you connect your love of Star Wars and your history with Star Wars to um, some of the more uh, fantasy type stuff that you write now? Oh. Absolutely. I honestly credit Star Wars a lot with teaching me how to construct a story because the thing I always say about A New Hope is that, you know, it's funny because A New Hope was really saved in the editing process. There's um, there's a really cool video on YouTube that talks about this more and kind of shows you how they, quote unquote, like fixed A New Hope through edits. How you know, just rearranging the order of a scene can increase the tension and like fix pacing. I found it really fascinating, but the story itself is like a perfectly constructed hero's journey. And so right. that was really like just watching and rewatching it. It kind of ingrained that storytelling model in my head. And I wrote a lot of fan fiction growing up, including Star Wars fan fiction and just kind of playing in that uh, fictional sandbox was wonderful. But and yeah, like even even Star Wars having like um, very specific character types. So like learning how to, how these different character types interact and how to kind of play with them a little bit. It was very, very formative for me as a writer to be so into Star Wars. And I completely agree with you that it's actually, I think more fantasy than science fiction. 
Um, it's probably why I like it so much. Cause I, I find science fiction and I think a lot of people find science fiction, like really hard science fiction, I should say to be like a little, um, it's not quite as accessible, I think as fantasy. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe that's just my personal opinion talking, but it's really like the mysticism and the big themes of hope. And I think the characters them Elves that really resonated with people. Would you agree with that, or do you think absolutely, absolutely, there's something else about it? <laughs> yeah, the, there's there's something, uh, and I I totally agree with you. Um, there are there's some hard science fiction that I absolutely love, um, and there's also some that is very difficult to to wrap your brain around. It it just like it there's. You have to have characters that you love, and I think that's that's what it boils down to: is can you have hard science fiction and have characters that uh, that drive the story and make you care about them? And maybe sometimes that doesn't translate to the page. Oh my gosh, no, a hundred percent. There's been a lot of debate, especially in the YA world recently, about like why YA science fiction hasn't worked the way like YA fantasy has, and I think part of it is that like science fiction is so visual, like the, I'm trying to think of how I would describe this. So for me personally, um, I read the Martian and I also like, I love the Martians film. Yeah. It's one of those few cases where I actually prefer the movie to the book because the Martian book gets so into the science of his survival, which is interesting. It's interesting, but like what really interests me and what I connect to emotionally is his story and his struggle to survive. And so I think about that a lot too, especially with YA. YA tends to be very, very character driven. And that's why um, you see a lot of romance in YA. I think you see it's just like those relationships become so much more important when you're doing that like deeper character work. So yeah, I see that a lot. And I honestly start writing every book with the main character. I brainstorm the plot off of the main character's arc. So it's really important to me. And I, yeah, so. I, I agree with you about the Martian and uh, the, the, um, the game changer for me was when the audiobook for the Martian came out and R.C. Bray um, did this amazing narration and really brought Mark Watney to life um, through his narration. And then when I saw the movie, um, it was just kind of an amplification of the work that R.C. Bray had already done in uh, in uh, narrating the audiobook, and uh, I, I think that was a, a change, a game changer for me when I realized what you could do um, with that with the audiobook form and and how it can actually become uh, kind of a, another entity of its own. Yes, I like. I've been thinking about this a lot too, and I know like. Audible is doing a lot of audio, um, like audio exclusive stories that right. a couple of my author friends have written for them. And I, I do love that. Like, you know, I don't know that we ever left kind of an oral tradition of storytelling, but I like that we're kind of coming back to it through like Absolutely. podcasts and through, it's not like a traditional radio drama anymore. Um, the way that they used to exist, but I think like, as you said, a really good audiobook can totally change the game and it can really bring a story to life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Alexandra, um, tell us about uh, The Darkest Minds. Where, where did this 
come from for you and uh and you know that this series took on a, a whole life of its own yeah so i always joke that my books never have like one lightning bolt of an idea i wish they did it would make for a better story but like really and this is the case with lore my new book too it's like i have what i call idea soup where it's like i know i like this and i know i like this and i know i want to write this kind of story and i know i love this type of character and somehow it all kind of comes together in my brain eventually and i'm able to um a story from that and hopefully it's delicious for readers to continue that uh, metaphor but like I think about this a lot too more and more The Darkest Minds is a perfect example of me writing a story full of things that I loved and I think that when you read the book or I hope that when you read the book you get that sense that I'm having fun with it and I'm excited by like what's happening in the story but it makes for kind of a random mixture of things like kids on, you know, with superpowers on the run from the government, but they're listening to classic rock, which I love, but they're taking a road trip, which I also love. So I think like, that's honestly advice I give to a lot of aspiring authors is like, find different ways to work in, um, you know, things that you love and that excite you into the story. Cause I think it makes a noticeable difference in kind of the X factor energy of the story, but the darkest minds was like really the book that changed my life. Um, I was living in New York and I was still at my first day job as an editorial assistant. And I was having like a really hard time adjusting to life in the big city because I went to school at the college of William and Mary, which is literally located at one end of colonial Williamsburg. So to go from colonial Williamsburg to Manhattan was like a really big jump for me as a pretty introverted person. And it's kind of hard to find your footing in New York. It takes you about a year to get really used to living there. And I had a really, a boss who was like really tough and really old school. And so I use this story as kind of an escape for me that I could come home from work or I could work on it on the weekends and just like disappear into the story with these characters. And it eventually, it was, you know, I never thought this would happen. It was optioned for film before it uh, like it ever released. It was optioned in 2011 when a lot of YA and a lot of books were really being optioned and kind of like grabbed by studios. And um, I was told at the time by my agent, like, this is really great and you should celebrate and you should definitely take this money. But, you know, this is very unlikely to happen. And then to my surprise, over the years, it just kept getting re-optioned. And then all of a sudden they were making the movie. <laughs> So that was a very surreal experience for me. Um, Hollywood is definitely very weird. I will say that. Um, But it was fascinating. Absolutely. And uh, I I recommend everyone go grab this series. Um, You're going to love it. Um, And there were, were there four books and, and, and a a few novellas in that series? Yes. So there um, are three books in the main trilogy and like a book of novellas that are set kind of between those books. And then in 2018, I wrote kind of a a standalone companion um, from a different character's point of view, but it's set like five years after the end of the trilogy. So it kind of helps wrap up that story a little bit more. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so happy you like them. They're really... um, they're kind of like, they are dystopian. I would say that it's sort of like a, a modern day thriller dystopian with superpowers. Love it. Love it. Um, you've also done some more um, 
traditional feeling uh, fantasy. Uh, and and now your new book, Lore, is out. Um, tell us, what was it that that brought you to to thinking about Greek mythology and, um, you know, re-envisioning the stories that uh, that have been told over and over and over again and ingrained into our our culture and our lives in, in ways that we don't even realize these these stories have survived for millennia. Um, what brought you back to these stories and uh, and got you to take a fresh look at them? So I was introduced to Greek mythology at a very young age by my mom, whose side of the family is Greek. And it I think she felt like it was an easy way to kind of start talking about that heritage. I yeah. think she kind of forgot how dark and kind of twisted <laughs> a lot of those stories are, but I love them. I was definitely that kid that liked dark, sad things. So I was like all in on Greek mythology, but like even at a very young age, I kind of, I, I did, I like took issue with the treatment of women. There's a lot of sexual violence in Greek mythology. And then there's also, you know, women were like very harshly punished for daring to step out of, you know, the boundaries of what they were allowed for, you know, if they expressed ambition or they acted on anger or pride, like they were really punished and that bothered me so much. And so when I was thinking about the kind of story I would want to write that used Greek mythology, I didn't necessarily want to write a straightforward retelling. I kind of wanted to bring that ancient world and those ancient stories into our modern world and see how those two cultures clash. So I landed on lore, which is definitely a more feminist take on Greek mythology. And it's centered on um, a character, Lore, who is really fierce. She lives in New York City. She's a part of this kind of cult-like society of hunters who are descended from ancient Greece's greatest heroes. And every seven years, they participate in a week-long hunt where nine of the Greek gods are basically cursed to be mortal for that week. And if one of the hunters can kill the god, they can take that god's power and immortality, but the catch is that they themselves become hunted during the next hunt seven years later. And it's really a story about power and about, you know, patriarchal societies and how damaging that they can be to both women and to young man, young men and really anyone who does not fit in that binary. So I had so much fun writing it. It's, you know, action-packed, very twisty, a little bit of romance, all my favorite things. So there have been uh, a few series over the years that have taken these ancient stories and brought them into uh, current time and and with current sensibilities and um, uh, characters that that we can uh, relate to in the modern world. Um, was there any trepidation uh, in from you about tackling these? these stories and bringing them into a more modern setting and, you know, maybe with more modern sensibilities. What, what were some of the pitfalls that you had to navigate? Oh, it was really, I really wanted to stay true to the original stories and find a way to kind of fit them into my world. So kind of reverse engineering that was sometimes a little difficult um, and really trying to like figure out which version of the stories to use, I would say. Because there are so many different variations of each myth. And um, within the book, they really believe that the myths have happened, um, obviously, because these gods exist. And it's, you know, the world, the only world that they've really known. They don't really um, 
they function within our modern world, but they kind of have this separate secret society within it. Um, yeah. And I really wanted to try to differentiate it, um, from a series like Percy Jackson, which is like a little bit more humorous. And this is definitely a more much, well, I want to say mature in the sense that it's like on the older scale of YA, I would say. And I'm hoping that even adults who maybe are not always into YA will also be interested in picking this one up. Um, my, uh, my youngest son who is, uh, 16, uh, got an Xbox game for Christmas and I, I can't think of the name of it. Um, it's, it's escaping me right now, but anyway, it takes a, a lot of these Greek, um, tales and, uh, you're, you're a character in the midst of that. And they do some cut scenes where they, they tell the, uh, the story of these gods and, and demigods and, and things like that. And, and, and he said, he said, dad, there was you know, when, when you see the actual story, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not, uh, it's not very palatable. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so I, that got me to thinking, you know, when you're retelling these stories, um, the, these are some of the most powerful, um, you know, stories that, and that's the reason they've been told over and over again. Um, even with the, um, with the pitfalls, of, of some of the original storytelling. Um, why do you think these things have survived as long as they have? Oh, that's a good question. I think there are probably two answers to this. The first is that, well, there are probably many answers, but for me, there are two answers. The first is that I think um, ancient Greek culture and um, ideas and philosophy and even the myths themselves kind of came to form the roots of Western civilization as it exists today. Um, you know, I feel like the symbols are everywhere. The characters or the characters of the mythology get referenced, <clears throat> you know, just in casual conversation. It's really interesting to see how long they've lasted and the influence that they still have on our government, on our ways of thinking. And even, you know, when I was in I think middle school, we had a whole unit on ancient Greece and ancient Rome. So I I do think that's true for a lot of schools across the country. They do kind of like a special unit on it. But in terms of the stories themselves, for me, I kind of feel like it has a lot to do with how dark these stories are and how they really are unflinching and how they just like depict humanity and they aren't afraid to um go into the ugliness of it the jealousy the rage murder i mean as we were saying before like some of these stories are just so twisted and i do think yeah I, i really think that they are just like endlessly fascinating and then there are different translations that come out so they just sort of continue to bubble up again and again but i do think one of, I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to use Greek mythology in this book is that I knew readers were would most likely be aware of the very basics of Greek mythology. And that's different than, say, like Celtic mythology or Celtic folklore, where I don't think as many people across the world are as familiar with it. So I knew that if I use Greek mythology, aside from just loving it myself and always wanting to write a book rooted in it, um, readers wouldn't have to work quite as hard to grasp what was going on. 
so you you mentioned that um, because some of these stories deal with the the darker sides of human nature, and and uh, even though the some of the characters in the stories are not necessarily necessarily human, we're we're depicting human nature and and the the yin and the yang, if you will, of of what makes us tick. Um, do you think that that because they're kind of unflinching in their portrayal of the wholeness of human nature, that that's what keeps us connecting to them? Yeah, I think so. I think you've just put it perfectly, honestly. Um, you really get both ends of the spectrum. You get these like moments of like joy and love. And yet also you have like parents feeding their children to the gods and, <laughs> you know, these horrible punishments. And I think the fact that the stories, unlike a lot of biblical stories, which are very um, black and white in their morality, I think the sort of like gray world that Greek mythology occupies is ultimately very appealing to us because we recognize that life itself is not, you know, unfortunately, it's not as easy to say like a situation is black or white in terms of how we should judge it or how we should experience it. So I definitely think that kind of moral ambiguity, I think people are into also the God sort of being these characters who are almost like heightened humans in a way where they experience a lot of sort of those like ugly human emotions, like jealousy and anger and rage. And they are so petty. It's like fascinating, <laughs> fascinating in a way they like the way they kind of snipe at one another and they try to trick each other. and. So they really make for compelling drama in a way, and they do a lot of really terrible things to mortals and to each other in these stories. So tell me a little bit about about the characters in the book that we meet here. Who is Lore and uh, and where did she come from? How did she take shape for you? So Lore is a 17 year old. She's living in New York City and she's grown up in kind of what I would call like a cult-like Barton-esque society of hunters, um, all of whom are descended from some of the ancient world's greatest heroes, like Achilles and Perseus. And she's grown up in, you know, this society of hunters is very secretive and they consider themselves to have this like very special appointed role by Zeus because, you know, a thousand years ago, let's say, um, nine gods as nine of the Greek pantheon, um, as they felt their power and influence begin to fade as a new god began to rise on the world scene, they tried to rebel against Zeus and reclaim some of that um, power that they felt like they were losing. And so as punishment, Zeus curses them every seven years for seven days to walk the earth as mortal. And if one of these hunters can kill one of the gods, they can take that god's power and immortality. So this society of hunters is like very, um, they still observe, observe a lot of ancient Greek traditions and they still hold onto a lot of these ancient ideas that are not very compatible with our modern life. And so Laura, who is this like very fierce and very passionate young woman has grown up in like a very restrictive patriarchal society um, and she's had to escape because at the end of the last hunt that took place, her family was murdered. So she kind of wants nothing to do with it and kind of wants to escape the darkness and violence of this world. But unfortunately, the hunt is back in her city. It's back in New York. 
this year and she can't escape it because Athena, the goddess herself, shows up wounded on her doorstep and offers Lore the thing that Lore basically thought was impossible, which is vengeance for her murdered family. So the book is like, it embraces the darkness of the original mythology, but it also kind of confronts it, I would say, and addresses a lot of the issues that I've had with some of these stories since I was even a kid, you know, flipping through the pages of Dallaire's Book of Greek Book of Greek Myths and loving the stories and loving the journeys and adventures and all of that. So Lore is a character that I just like, I don't know, I feel a little bit more connected to her than some of my earlier characters if only because we went on the 2020 journey together and she was like my constant companion throughout the (laughs) pandemic and it took um because there were furloughs at my publisher last year it took longer for the book to be edited and for the book to go through the production process so it really it really I got some extra quality time with her but I had wanted to write a book that was set in New York City because I had lived there for about six years after graduating school and I was feeling kind of homesick for New York. It's just this really incomparable place. And I love New Yorkers. I love people born and raised in the city and how um, independent the kids are in New York. Like they're almost too cool. I like kind of just like bow to them. (laughs) They're like very cool, sophisticated kids and teens. So I wanted Laura to be a native New Yorker and to really love the city and have that come through in the book too. The, uh, the book is, uh, is, is targeted, uh, YA, um, and young adult, which is, uh, I think has been a, a little bit of a misunderstood genre designation for some readers. Um, were, were there specific challenges, um, to writing a story like this um, targeted toward YA or um, was it empowering uh, to write uh, a story in this way? Did, did, did the, the audience or uh, the, the age of the characters have any, did, did it dictate in any way the way the story went? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, I think YA is kind of misunderstood. <laughs> as an age group, um, in terms of book publishing. And I, it's so frustrating sometimes because I think when people think of YA, they think of just Twilight and the Hunger Games and Harry Potter, really the big books, or they'll think of, there was a time sort of like the golden age of YA when it was, you know, Twilight was coming out and there were a lot of imitators that were published because essentially publishers were trying to really capitalize on the success of that book, which really lifted sales across the industry. So they were um, publishing a lot of read-alikes for Twilight, a lot of paranormal romances. And so I feel like when people think of YA, they still think of paranormal romances a lot. And there's nothing wrong with them. I think that those stories are really fun to read. And YA is like, it can be pure escapism, but there are a lot of like really interesting, gritty books that are published pretty much like every single week in YA and the this side of the industry, the kidlit side is finally starting to diversify a little bit in terms of its offering, in terms of the staffs, but it's been like a very slow, slow going process. But when I was thinking about lore, I you know what's so funny is that I I didn't realize I had written a book that was kind of more on the mature end. This sounds like so I sounds so strange. 
<laughs> I didn't realize I had written a book that was kind of more on the mature end of YA until my editor mentioned to me, she was like, well, this is like really kind of on the border of YA and adult. And I was like, well, like what would, what distinguishes the two? And oftentimes there's like actually not a lot other than the main character's age that distinguishes right. YA from adult fiction. And I think that's important for adults to understand too. Although I will say that when I worked in publishing, we would commission all sorts of studies on who was reading YA and who was buying YA. And for like the vast majority of these studies, it was always adults that were buying YA to read for themselves rather than teenagers, which makes sense because teenagers, a parent will usually buy a book for a teen or a kid. But really it was like these adults were buying these stories to read for themselves to just have like some nice bit of escapism and some fun. So, well, I yeah, was gonna, her, yeah, no, go ahead. No, I was, I was gonna say, I was gonna mention that you know, all of the series that you mentioned, the wildly popular series that, um, uh, that kind of broke through, um, all of those that you mentioned are, are YA series and they all, uh, feature a teenage protagonist for the most part. And yet the majority of the readers uh, that I know are all adults. It, it's kind of this weird <laughs> thing that these are designations that we in the publishing industry understand or, or at least try to understand. But I think for the vast reading audience, they don't they don't care what's YA and what's not. That, that means absolutely nothing to them. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, you know, this book deals with some um, more, I would say, I feel weird saying mature, but that's the best word I can think of for it. It deals with some more mature themes than some of my past work. And the violence depicted in the book was intentionally meant to feel very visceral and very immediate because lore is, I mean, obviously when you are in the middle of a hunt and you're hunting gods, like to really sell the character of lore, who is sort of like getting dragged back into this violent world and kind of remembering She's having to fight this pull of her upbringing, and, and which I would, I, when I was thinking of lore, I was really thinking of people who, who join cults and how that you don't realize you're joining a cult when you join a cult and how it kind of sneaks <laughs> up on you. And then you're all in because you've been essentially like mentally brainwashed and kind of like physically conditioned to be all in on these beliefs. And so she's like having to really fight all of that upbringing in the book. and. The book addresses um, the sexual assaults that appear in the mythology um, and really, there, yeah, there's some death. There's some real viciousness in the book. I think it, I think it'll be okay for younger readers for sure if, you know, they can handle it. That's the wonderful thing I think about YA books is that if the readers in that age group, the actual teens, they can't handle it or they don't like it, they will put the book down. Like they don't necessarily need to be protected from more mature content that they're not ready for because they have it in their ability to be able to put the book down and they do it all the time. So yeah. Yeah. I, it's so funny. I, I mean, I hope this book really works for adults too and that they like it, but thinking about teens, Laura's story is still really, um, you know, just her trying to figure out who she wants to be and like how she wants to exist in the world and navigate through it. What matters to her, which are, really the universal themes of young adult literature. So it felt right to keep her in the YA world rather than try to push the book somehow into the adult world. Well, lore is a very interesting twist 
on some very old stories and a, and a, and a modern twist on it. But uh, all of that aside, Lore is a very, very fun book. It's it's a page turner, and it's one that it's a story that you will absolutely just fall into and love every oh, minute of you. it. Um, yeah, yeah, so I, I'm recommending this book to to everyone this year. This is so much fun. Thank you. Yeah, you know, and that's it's so funny because I'm always like, I know this sounds like really dark, and there are there is some darkness in here in this book, but. It ultimately, like, I wanted it to be a fun escapist read. And that's really what it became for me in 2020 as I was working on it. Like, I really think if you're looking for a story to just, you know, get absorbed in and knock out a weekend, you know, I I hope this book will be that for you and deliver that for you. But thank you so much. That means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, Lore is a standalone book and it, it's a fully encapsulated story. Um, but, you know, now that 2020 is over and we're we're now living in the future and, and life is going on, um, what are you working on now? And, and do you see yourself revisiting uh, this world and these topics uh, ever again in the future? Oh, gosh, you know, it's it's always so tempting, especially since I love these characters so much. Like when I, you know, when the book was off to the printer, I was just like, oh, no, that was it. Like, that's all my time with those characters for the most part. Like, I don't get to live in that world with them anymore, which is always a sad feeling as an author, because usually you have like another book or a companion to dive into where you can revisit them again. But with this, I you know, just from the beginning, even when I was brainstorming, I felt like very sure that this should be a standalone and that the story really needed to resolve itself because a lot of the, you know, bigger epic poems and myths within Greek mythology kind of came to some sort of conclusion at the end, even if it was a tragic conclusion. Um, So I like that her story would be self-contained and that the book is named after her and gets to be kind of that fun play on words for legend and all of that. So yeah, I don't know if, if I wrote something in this world again, I'm not sure how I would do it. Like, I'm not, I'm like, how do I say this without spoiling anything? I think it would have to be probably from the perspective of another character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would never rule it out, but for now I'm like very satisfied with where it ends. So, but right now I am. (laughs) So I launched this book out into the world and then on February 2nd, there's a young reader graphic novel um, rebirth of my debut novel, which came out in 2010, which was like a very light, sweet little fantasy. The novel's out of print, so I'm really happy it gets to live again in this new format called Brightly Woven. And that was like a really fun project and different project to work on. So I kind of want to explore working in the graphic novel world this year. And I'm working on another YA book that deals this time a little bit more with Celtic mythology, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to resist the siren song of Greek mythology for very long. Uh, of course, there would be a play on words there. Um, yeah. I, I love it. I, I love it. Um, well, <laughs> a- Alexandra, um, satisfied is a very good place to be, um, you know, and yeah. for an, an industry and a, and a job where, um, there's always longing for something else to, to finish a project and be completely satisfied with it. That is a, a great place to be. Um, we're going to put links Very to rare. lore. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to put links to lore in the show notes to make it easy for everyone to find. I highly recommend 
Uh, everyone pick up a copy of this book uh, in Kindle edition or hardcover and audio book, of course. I think I'm going to grab the audio book and listen to it um, coming up uh, in the next few weeks. I I uh, I, I feel like I want to visit this world again and, and let someone uh, read it to me. You'll have to let me know what you think of the narrative. I will. My friend Brendan was like very kind and he he teaches and translates ancient um and ancient and um medieval literature. So oh, he kindly provided the correct pronunciations for the different characters and names and whatnot. So if you're reading the book and you're curious how to say any of these words, um we have Brendan to thank for that in the audiobook. But um yeah, let me know what you think of the narrator and all of that. And if I- the physical book, and I'm pretty sure the Kindle edition come with, you know, charts of the families. And then at the back of the book, there's cast of characters list and there's a map of New York City if you're not familiar with it. So the physical package is gorgeous. I do say so myself. but Absolutely. Uh, um, yeah. Al- Alexandra, uh, if people want to dig into all the great stuff that you do and, and find out more about you and, you know, follow along your journey uh, as as it goes forward, where can they find you online? You can find me online at alexandrabracken.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Alex Bracken. Excellent. We'll put links to all those in the show notes and uh, we're going to send everyone to see you. Uh, Alex, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you for taking time to come on the show. Thank you for having me. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com